Now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. Our new investment product offers competitive returns, no maintenance fees, and flexible online access to your money. Make the reliable investment in reliable energy. The Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. To find out more, go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. That's reliabilityinvestment.com. This is episode 303 of the Real Me and Colon, a movie podcast. On this week's episode, Chase and Joel will take a look at The Irishman and Knives Out, as well as the movie news and movie trailers that dropped throughout the week. All this and more on today's Real Me In. What is going on, everybody? And welcome to another episode of Real Me In, colon, a movie podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Chase Lee. And if you were new to the show, welcome. If you were looking for a podcast out there uh, to satisfy your movie knowledge and needs and just want to hear a couple people talk about movies, I think you hit the right place, and we hope that you can uh, take this journey with us. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. We always appreciate you guys. This is episode 303. As stated at the top, we will be going over The Irishman, then taking a break and doing the trailers and the news sections, and then reviewing Knives Out, and then closing out the episode and go on to next week. That's just how we that's how we do it here. Um, but yes, uh, that is the lineup of today's episode. Before I throw it over to my wonderful co-host over there, uh, we have not seen him uh since you know Thanksgiving break and everything, so it'll be interesting to hear all that. Uh, but yes, if you are listening on Spotify, Castbox, you know iHeartRadio, Apple, Google, wherever you're listening to this thing, please you know like it, subscribe to the channel, and um, spread it around. Let people know this is your favorite movie podcast to listen to. We would really appreciate it. Joseph, uh, how is it going over there? We haven't uh, done this in a couple weeks. Um, you know Thanksgiving was upon us. Uh, did you gain 50 pounds or 60 pounds? I'm not really sure, but please let us know. Uh, a direct number would be helpful. Um, and yeah, just uh, what have you been? What have you been watching? Uh, you know, you did get to see one movie this week uh, that we can, you know, tease the fans over, if you will. So uh, yeah, well, what's been going on over there? Actually, I saw two movies, but yes, um, I've been doing good. Uh, it's a good couple of weeks. I actually lost three pounds i think because i've been losing weight so that was pretty cool um just been watching calorie count and all of that uh my um my thanksgiving kind of celebration was actually the morning after we recorded last uh it was on a saturday before that particular thursday and uh that was fun and then i saw Little Women. No, we already saw. We had already seen Little Women. It's a blur, guys. I don't know what I've seen when, but we, um, uh, you know, I watched The Irishman, which we'll get to. I've seen uh, Uncut Gems. We both have. Um, I don't know if we can talk about that one yet, but uh, but yeah, we've seen it. I saw 1917 this past Monday. Um, I saw The Aeronauts last night. I saw. I caught up with Arctic, Hotel Mumbai, Abominable, and Gloria Bell. Um, thanks to you, thank you, Chase. And uh, then, in terms of just kind of personal stuff, I haven't actually had many work shifts, so that's been going pretty smoothly. Um, 
and otherwise just kind of hanging out really i mean other than the big celebrate oh oh i will say i did see uh on tuesday a little a very very sweet little production of beauty and the beast um at a church that my nephew and niece were in uh and it was it was really good it was it was a fun little thing i mean it was a bunch of three i think it's like three or four to ten year olds or something like that and so or four to four to twelve or i can't remember how how old it the 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 gap was but that was a lot of fun um and the uh, the girl who played bell was excellent so anyway, very low budget. It was it was not like a big lavish thing or whatever. They barely had any set things, or I don't even think think that there was a budget for this particular production. It was not even a production, I guess, but it was fun. And um, let's see. Other than that, just kind of been like you said, catching up on movies. I know that you've been doing the same this week um, since you got back from your trip. And uh, like you said, it's been a couple weeks. You know, you all heard from us last week, but it's been a couple weeks since we actually recorded because uh, we recorded that uh, 10 worst episode about a week early and uh, or a week earlier than it than it than it landed. And um, yeah, since then, just really honestly, just been kind of hanging out, watching movies like a madman, um, you know, rewatching stuff that I didn't get to get a chance to review like. Uh, fighting with my family and dragged across concrete, um, and catching up on stuff, getting getting a head start on reviews. I'll be writing my uncut gems in nineteen seventeen reviews tomorrow. Uh, that's that's what's on the docket, and uh, seeing even more stuff this coming this coming week. I'll be getting another chance at waves. I know that I mentioned this last time, but had a had kind of a disastrous. Um, uh, attempt at seeing that the first time with the with all the power going out so i'll be able to get another another shot at that uh, seeing dark waters this coming monday um catching up on other things you know seeing richard jewel next next friday afternoon so yeah it's just uh it's a crazy time and i love it it's it's oscar season man i think that i only have really about 10 or maybe tw- I don't remember the exact number. I think it's like some something like ten to twelve movies that I need to see. Maybe ten. I think it's ten movies that I need to see left um, to really get a handle on my top ten, which is you know still in uh, still in the works and uh, has changed dramatically in the past couple of weeks. So as you'll find out in in one part of this episode, maybe. Um, and so yeah. Anyway, it's just been been a good time. Oh, and I also saw Honey Boy and Knives Out. So I liked Honey Boy, and then we'll get to Knives Out at the end of it at the end of the episode. So that's basically been my my couple of weeks. Really, just kind of hunkered down on the couch. You know, I don't have any sort of like voting deadline. Um, I can't remember when yours is. I know that you kind of have one, but. Ours is this weekend, uh, yeah. and obviously I still have a lot more to watch, but I think I've seen 95% of the movies I wanted to right. see before the awards, so I'll call it, it's, you know. It's not like you'll have, like, a bad, you know, like, <laughs> uh, a bad well to draw from right. in order yeah. in order to vote for stuff. Yeah, yeah I, I'm not worried about it. It's, it's just one of those things that, guys, I have an 8-to-5 job. If I 
was doing this full time, I would love to just knock out all the screeners and stuff like our beloved friend Mark, but that's just impossible. Yes. <laughs> um, so, but I did actually have a really good list, and I threw a bunch of a uh, bunch of stuff in there that you know maybe not other people would throw in there. So I you know kind of threw in um, some stuff, but yeah, um, kind of did the same thing. You know, watched uh, uh, some movies in the theater. You know, caught up with Knives Out, saw uh, Bombshell on Monday. Uh, you guys will get that review um, was it a couple weeks from now. Uh, and then uh, the Aeronauts yesterday. But, yeah, uh, me and the missus, you know, we got to – excuse me, we have to cram all these, you know, screeners in uh, eventually. Uh, uh, probably, you know, this weekend, maybe next weekend as well. But, yeah, uh, you know, it, I for the Thanksgiving break, I went to Georgia for the week. Um my parents have a really cool like basement like movie theater room, so I went down there one night, had a whole bottle of wine. Yes, you heard that correctly, a whole bottle. I watched, uh, caught up on all my HBO shows, and I watched The Mandalorian down there. It was quite lovely because um, you can blast up the volume as loud as you can, and no one can hear you upstairs. So it's it's so so great. But uh, yeah, um, oh, funny story about the Irishman. So. I tried doing this three times, and it has nothing to do about the the quality of the movie. But uh, as Joel knows, uh, he's been with me in movies before. I guess I have narcolepsy, and I just fall asleep at random points sometimes. If my body is just exhausted, guys, it's it's hard for me to stay up and watch a movie, even if I'm watching something like Uncut Gems. Um, it just happens sometimes. But the first time I tried to watch The Irishman, it, I got 20 minutes in. I started feeling drowsy, and I was like, Okay, I can't do this. Uh, it's three and a half hours. I, I got to, you know, I got to fully commit. Second time I tried watching it, I did it again. I started from the beginning and I went 40 minutes in this time. I was drowsing. I was like, you got to be kidding me. So I started a third time and I watched the whole thing through. And I was just like, I was so proud of myself. Uh, but yeah, it's nothing to do with the quality of the movie. I just thought that was really um funny it's just well uh, I'll, I'll tell you i did have i did have an interruption so of course it was on thanksgiving day that i watched this because that was really the only time where i knew that i would have the whole day off from everything you know our our uh, store is not open that day and and since it's a holiday i'm off of school work and all of that so i was like okay that's probably the perfect day to do this and we'd already had our celebration so i started it and then you know i told my parents i was like this is you know it's a three and a half hour movie it's going to be my whole morning and so, but the problem is that my dad is sort of like you in terms of waking up except an hour earlier. So he had been up since like 4.30 and, you know, eating breakfast shortly, shortly thereafter. So, of course, seven hours later, he was pretty hungry. And what he wanted to do was eat a, a Thanksgiving-style lunch somewhere, you know, like at a, at a restaurant. Um, of course, you know, of course it ended up – that all of them were busy, but uh, so we actually did a dinner. But about forty-five minutes, literally at the point when we'll get to this, but the point when it turns into kind of another movie at the end, uh, he texted me. He's like, "We're hungry. You know what? How long is the movie <laughs> still?" I'm like, and so I I had to pause it for a whole like I think it was about seven or eight minutes. And I went down and, and negotiated staying to watch the movie because the whole point was to watch the whole thing in one sitting. And uh, anyway, it turned it out. It turned out that all the all the places were busy, so we couldn't do that anyway. Um, and so yeah, uh, but I totally get. I mean, it's a it's a long movie. It's a commitment. 
you know, it's all like, Joel, imagine the the other critics out there that are way more powerful than us. They have kids. They're yeah. like they had probably had, had to stop it like eight times. So uh right. yeah, yeah, if I, they're if they're watching it at home. At home, yeah. yeah. Um so yeah, I, I totally get it. But um if you guys ever watch movies with me, it's just really funny because like I just if I'm just exhausted, I will I will drink coffee before a movie or um you know, tea or something. I will try my best. But if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And I'm just like, all right, adios. I'm uh, I'm going to sleep in the chair. But, yeah, I, that was my Irishman. Um, Chase Chase has done it in film festivals. Not very much. Yeah, not very not much. Not very long. But, but I have time. done it. <laughs> right, yeah. It's, uh, I, I, to a minimal amount. But Yeah. So. <laughs> it, my, my rule of thumb is if I miss more than about 5 five or 10% of the movie, then I can't review it. It just, it, that would be irresponsible. It's, it's basically like what happened with, um, with us when we saw a movie in the middle of this year's festival called sunset, which right. remember we, we went to see that and you slept through like half of it. <laughs> so yeah, like, yeah, I'm not going to review this. I was this. like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> that. That would be stupid of me. So yeah. Hey. And I, and I didn't, and I didn't blame you. We'd done it after two days of what was like eight movies or something. So right. Yeah, it it was understandable. Yeah, it just uh, it, it happens, guys. But um, and I and I will just say, when it comes to the Irishman's length, there's a there's a big conversation about how you should watch it and it, and how many and and in how many sittings you should watch it. And I just have to say, it's dumb. Just 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 don't do that because it's it's basically like you're you're saying, oh, hey, I'm super privileged in that I don't have – maybe don't have two jobs or don't have other responsibilities. People have stuff going on. And you know, I know that isn't like – isn't a bit of drowsiness one of the you – know, you, you take medicine for, for your condition. Isn't one of those things a little bit of drowsiness? Yep. So, if, you, if you go on the uh, the website, one of the uh, side effects is or fatigue. Or – or it's not like yeah, that's what it is. Fatigue, not drowsiness. Drowsiness is different. Um, it's basically Chase can't stay up forever. <laughs> you know, can't stay awake forever. So if it's a really I, I'm long not you. movie like that, you, exactly. you are a different animal. You can I am. you could stay up until five in the morning and be fine. I can't do that anymore. <laughs> so uh, so it's it's just it's a long movie. It's a long movie. I mean, not in a problematic way, but it's just it's a commitment, and I totally understand that. So right. anyway, um, go ahead. You were talking no, about your week. Yeah, no, I was just uh, going to say that. Um, yeah. So after the Irishman, I, we got home and stuff and I came home to like a, a bunch of screeners and stuff. So trust me, I will get through them um, and I will throw them at you guys. If it's not a part of a main uh, episode like Uncut Gems or uh, like, for instance, I got Hidden Life today. Those will be a part of main episodes, but like movies that aren't a part of main episodes, I will have many reviews, though. So Yes, you will get them all, including Waves, Peanut Butter Falcon, Judy. Yes, I will do them. Will they come out soon? Uh, we'll, we'll see, but uh, they they will come out. Um, and the last thing next week, <laughs> yeah, right? Uh, uh, maybe next year, some point in October. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, one last thing before uh, we jump into the Irishman review, I got the um, uh, st- statistics for the show on Spotify. Everyone's been posting up. You know uh, what they've been listening to, and you know what genre the you know they have the most, and how many minutes and all that stuff. Even Brian showed us that he's been listening to our podcast uh, quite a bit. Uh, so thank you, Brian. But uh, since I, I, Joel and I are the creators, we also get stats in terms of like you know 
how much you guys are listening to, where you guys are listening to and everything. And I thought this was really funny, Joel. The top three streamed episodes that we had on Spotify this year, and this is not including the top ten uh, of the year because those are usually um, popular episodes. So, Joel, here's the top three episodes that we did this year so far. Uh, number one was the mid-year report. Okay, that's fair enough. Usually the list episodes are the most popular. Number two is the fall movie preview. Once again, makes sense. The number three most streamed episode that we had, thanks to you lovely listeners, but I'm just baffled as to why this is the one, is our Lion King episode. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, so maybe it's because we ranted on it for three hours. Who knows? But um, I find that kind of funny. That's our top three. That so, is, that is a, the most random one that you could right. that you all could listen to the most. That's, so, that's very uh, interesting. We, we really appreciate the support and uh, uh, in – uh, we just hope you guys continue to listen. And speaking of continuing to listen, Joel, let, we got to jump into the the longest movie of the year so far. <laughs> Until another one swoops in December 31st. Yeah, I don't know if it's literally the longest, but it is really long. And this is our review of The Irishman. Now, of course, this is the new movie from director Martin Scorsese. He's a filmmaker you might have heard of. He's made movies like... Oh, I don't know, uh, The Age of Innocence, Hugo, After Hours, really popular stuff. I went for his most popular films. I'm kidding. He really, uh, <laughs> he really doesn't like the MCU. That's the only thing I know about him. The only thing I know about him. Oh, gosh, yeah. Uh, he's he's a DC guy. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> watch me uh, spark a bunch of comments. Okay, so this is the new movie from Scorsese, who previously brought us a lot of gangster movies, including stuff like Mean Streets, uh, Casino, Goodfellas, The Departed, Gangs of New York, what have you. Great movies, all of them. And this is his latest. It reunites him with a few of his most frequent collaborators. It gives him his first pairing with a really big actor that you'd be surprised to hear has never worked with him before. It also reunites him with his uh, favorite or one of his favorite genres to work in, which is the gangster drama. Um, or the gangster epic, I should say, because this is a, this is a true epic. It's 209 minutes. It is the story of the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa as told by the person who claims to have killed him, uh, in a book, uh, called I Heard You Paint Houses by Charles Brandt. It was a nonfiction fiction hybrid. It was very popular in 2004 when it was released and it's kind of the perfect material for, uh, for Scorsese to take on. Uh, this one stars Robert De Niro as Frank Sheeran, who was once a driver for a cola company before, um, uh, or Canada Dry, I think, uh, so a water company, before moving on to more uh, <laughs> more criminal work when he meets Russell Buffalino, played by Joe Pesci, coming out of a long retirement, um, and starts doing odd jobs for the Buffalino crime family, uh, which also includes a man named Skinny Razor, played by Bobby Cannavale, and um, a close associate named Angelo Bruno, played by Harvey Keitel, another Scorsese collaborator from way back since uh, since the days of Mean Streets and Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Um, yeah, so his eventual job, though, becomes uh, is becoming the handler for Jimmy Hoffa, who is a uh, the leader of the Teamsters, the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, a union 
based out of uh, I think I think Washington D.C. Although he's in Detroit, and uh, he's played by first-time Scorsese collaborator. Yes, it's it's amazing this hasn't happened. Uh, Al Pacino. Uh, this is the first time Pacino is working under Scorsese, and it's the first time he's working opposite Pesci, which uh, surprised me honestly even more. Uh, you'd think that they would have worked together before this, but nope. Uh, this is the story, the very, very, very long, um, epic story of Frank's rise through the crime family and ultimately being lonely, old, in a wheelchair at a rest home, uh, with no one to call his own, no family willing to talk to him, no friends alive to, uh, to keep him company, nothing. And, uh, that is what the story is. And so to get in, to get right into it, guys, this is, I think, Scorsese's best film of the decade. Uh, it's been a really interesting decade for him too, because he started out with a psycho thriller, Shutter Island, came out came out way back, February 2010. Then he moved on from that to a children's movie, Hugo, in November of 2011. Kind of a quick, <laughs> quick turnaround there. Uh, not usual for him anymore. Then he moved on to a big, gigantic crime comedy of sorts uh, with The Wolf of Wall Street, probably his second best film uh, of the decade. And then with a religious epic um, with uh, with Silence, which is a real – kind of a real accomplishment for him. Uh, has one of the best performances of any – Scorsese movie and Andrew Garfield. So it's been interesting to see him move through these different genres. And this just basically feels like a natural endpoint for his gangster epics. And yes, I think that even if he has another movie in him, and I think that he might have a couple, um, what I'm really hoping is after he does this Killers of the Flower Moon with um, De Niro and Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, that he does the Roosevelt uh, biopic that he's been planning for a, for a while with, uh, with DiCaprio. But anyway, until then, we have this, which is, I think, his last gangster epic ever. Um, and it would be quite the note to end that particular genre on because this is uh, – you know, I don't know if it's in the top tier of his greatest movies. Um, I don't even know if it's in the top tier of his greatest uh, gangster movies. I think that Goodfellas and especially Casino probably are better than this one. Um, but I would say that it's comfortably on – the level of something like The Departed or Gangs of New York, which is really high uh, estimation in, in, in my opinion. So, uh, yeah, I love this movie. And to kind of get right into it, we have to start at the top. And there's been a big conversation about, you know, who gives the best performance in this? Because we have three of the classic kind of wise guy actors here. You have uh, Pacino, who's playing Jimmy Hoffa, like he's just uh, playing to the entire room as well as to the lobby outside, as well as to the street outside the theater. It's it's a big, gregarious performance. He's fantastic uh, in this role. You also have Pesci, who's kind of twisting um, his own persona to be 180 degrees different from what it is. Usually he's the hothead. You know, think about his roles as as Tommy DeVito in Goodfellas, as um, uh, I forgot his name, but <laughs> even though I've watched it twice this year, 
but his character in Casino, um, I don't have that ready with me. I'm sorry, folks. Uh, think about his roles in those, and even sort of in Raging Bull, just slightly less of a hothead there, but sort of one. Here, you have Pesci as this intense, very quiet, very reserved, very icy, very intimidating, but very quiet guy in Russell Bofalino, uh, a guy who seems to be outwardly rather pleasant as kind of this old guy, but has something in his eyes where you can definitely tell he's going to he's going to strike strike, you know, lash out at you, um, potentially order your death <laughs> or just do it himself. And so that's unusual for him. And it's a great little just uh, it's a great role for him um, to take on, especially after, you know, I think he's been s- semi-retired at least for a decade. Um, he's been doing music, uh, actually. He's a he's an R&B artist on the side. And he, in fact, I think just released or is about to release a new album uh, with the help of Adam Levine of Maroon 5. Weird thing for Pesci to do, but that's what he's been doing. And he's come back with this performance that is truly one of his finest. But, guys, I'm sorry to say that even though I love those performances and they're great support in this particular narrative, this is Robert De Niro's movie all the way. He's in nearly every scene if not every scene, and he's stunning. It's uh, some of the best work I think he's ever done, and that's saying something. This guy is the guy who did ta- Taxi Driver and and Raging Bull and um, and Goodfellas and Casino and Awakenings and a bunch of other movies in which he was excellent, nominated for Oscars. Um, but this is, I think, his, his one of his finest performances. Uh, possibly his best work in certainly of this decade, maybe even of the previous decade, uh, since the previous decade, I should say. It is exquisite work. Um, there's a scene here where he has a phone call. I'm not going to reveal what it is. It's late in the movie. Chase knows what I'm talking about. That was apparently accomplished in a single take, uh, in a single, yeah, in a single take. There was no other take done. Of this particular scene in which he just breaks down um, and cannot convey a certain truth. Um, again, I'm trying to like not get into spoilers here, but he cannot convey a certain truth about a situation. And he's got he's to gotta be – he's got he's to gotta, you know, emit emotion – He's got to keep it really close to his chest about what that emotion is trying to communicate. And I think that that's his Oscar clip if he is indeed nominated for this, and he should be. I think that's his Oscar clip, and I think that it is possibly the best single sequence I've seen De Niro perform personally. I, that's what I'm, I'm, I know that that's strong words considering some of the – climax of taxi driver some of the boxing sequences and the and the ending of raging bull but i think that it's i think that it's the best work he's ever done in a single sequence um and you just get that throughout here and so you know he plays he plays frank from the age of i think 24 until the age of 80 when he's in that rocking chair um uh part of it is through de-aging Technology. I'm going to get to that in a second, uh, just to let people know. 
that I don't think it's disastrous, um, but I'm going to get to that in a second. And, uh, but I just, uh, but it rests on his performance, whatever the case, even if he's, even if he's acting with tiny dots on his face, being computerized to look like his himself from the days of Raging Bull and, and Casino, it is an excellent performance, uh, through and through, truly emotional. And it really stands tall across, uh, you know, atop this massive ensemble because beyond these three, of course, you got Keitel, you got Anna Paquin as, uh, Anna Paquin in Marin, Ireland, I can't talk today, um, as his pair of daughters. I think he might have another one, but that's the two we see. Um, and they're both excellent, especially Paquin in a mo- mostly wordless performance uh, that is the sort of the Greek chorus of the movie, the heart, the the moral center and the audience stand-in for some of these events. Uh, great, great performance. And... You also have Stephanie Kurtzuba as his wife, uh, Rini, who's quite good. Um, and you just have little, little, not little people, but little roles that are just filled by really just excellent character actors. Ray Romano, Dominic Lombardazzi, um, who I've known since an episode of, uh, of 24 in which he played a, um, a particularly violent cop. And, uh, yeah, just an excellent cast all the way through. Um, a real sense by Scorsese of the weight and scope of this tale. That's why it's so long. The length is the point of this movie. It does not need to hurry. Although, this is also a three hours that fly by. And it's because of the fact that Scorsese envelops us in this plot so thoroughly. Um, it's just a superbly mounted narrative uh, that covers you know, several decades of time, um, as we learn, you know, a lot about these characters from Frank's loyalty, which is unwavering, even when he's given a certain mission, uh, in the second half of the movie from Hoffa, who just is so gregarious and so completely, uh, stubborn and egotistical that he can't really fess up to, uh, to anything really and he can't keep a sense of loyalty he can't keep his mouth shut it's a very loose-lipped situation that's what the movie leads to it's not really a spoiler to say that everybody knows that Hoffa disappeared and was um, pronounced dead in 1982 after seven years of of, uh, of being presumed dead this movie purports to answer that question and so it's not really a spoiler to say that Hoffa finds himself in a certain situation out of which he cannot get himself and that situation involves Frank's orders. Um, but this movie does not end at the place that you might anticipate it to end. There's a final 45 minutes here where basically certain fates must be met and certain decisions must see their consequences. Um, certain characters must, like, basically face the immediate consequences of their families just not talking to them. Um, that has a big effect on Frank and uh, turns De Niro's performance even more tragic uh, as it goes along. Um, I'm thinking about a scene at the, at the bank. Um, Chase knows exactly what I'm talking about. And it's a scene where he where Frank just crumbles, just crumbles. It's a great scene. 
Um, but yeah, this thing has the scope and the weight of a grand Greek tragedy. Uh, it is it is a truly truly excellent film. You know, I hesitate to say masterpiece because it's so big. You have to think that there's some problems somewhere with it. It's just too big. But for the purposes of its genre, it's certainly another masterpiece in its genre. Um, it's a big, grand uh, Shakespearean tragedy, big Greek epic, but it's also ultimately Scorsesean. It it tackles all the things that he loves and has loved over the course of his career. Um Lonely men at the top, lonely men in 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 criminal organizations, um, just life in America. And in fact, a, a friend of mine uh, named Michael – hello, Michael. He's probably not listening to this. Anyway, um, called it a secret history of the 20th century, and it's kind of – it's kind of true because of some of the stuff that Hoffa – gets into um, the fact that he claims to know and have involvement in certain political events like the assassinations of Jack and Bobby Kennedy and in the Bay of Pigs. Um, and, cer- and certainly Frank has some, some hands in those events too. Um, so we get a lot of that and we get a lot of you know, the changing times from the, you know, the 40s to the 70s. Um, it's about, like I said, it's about 30 years of, of, uh, of storyline, 30s, I guess, 40 years of storyline. And yeah, it's just big, beautiful. The cinematography is gorgeous. Um, a lot of people have been somehow complaining that it looks like a TV movie. I don't think so at all. I think that this, it's gorgeous. I mean, it's maybe not Prieto's best work with Scorsese. Um, I think it would be tough to top, uh, silence, which is gorgeous, shot in, you know, another part of the world, and utilizes a lot of that natural lighting and all of that. That's probably a better, better looking movie. But this is certainly flashy when it needs to be. Very um, uses a lot of grays and and blues and stuff when it when it uh, wraps up in the in this massive denouement that's you know almost an hour long, and it just co- completely reinvents itself. Um, with those, with that final hour, I think that that's the that's the movement of the plot that makes this the most special uh, section of the movie. Um, and again, it's just those performances from these three leads are just all superb. Um, Pesci's intimidating. Pacino is is entertaining, truly entertaining. Uh, curses at everybody. He's the reason for the pervasive language and the re- and the rating reason. Um, he loves a certain, I guess it's ten-letter word. Uh, starts with a C. <laughs> you get my drift. And uh, he's basically with that word. He's like Pesci was in Casino with the F word here, and it's just extremely entertaining. Um, and so, yeah. And then and then De Niro is just heartbreaking. It's a it's a towering performance from him, and in a movie that is absolutely one of the best of the year. So. Um, I feel like every time I review this movie, even with my written review, I, I, there's so much to this movie that I barely cover any part of it, (laughs) but I think for the purposes of this, I think that I'm, I think there's really not much more to say. I've, I've covered the, the basics. Uh, we can get into some specifics in Chase's review, but, 
but yeah, I just I love this movie. It's it's big and it's truly epic. Um, I can't wait to watch this again. Like that's the thing is that it's long, but it's not punishing um, at all. It's it's not. I mean, you know, we we both had the Goldfinch on our list of the worst films of the year, Chase, and that movie is I think it's about an hour shorter than this. Um, yeah, two and a half. Three, yes, so an hour shorter than this. And The Goldfinch feels about an hour longer uh, to me. And that's the thing about relative length. I mean, you, you talk about these, um, these movies that are long, that earn their length, and do something just you know, incredibly rich and evocative with it. And then you talk, and then these movies that just set up these hollow mysteries with absolutely no point to them or anything. And it's just, and it's just like night and day. Uh, a movie has to earn length if it's truly really long. And I think that, you know, the goldfinch is kind of the gold standard right now of not earning that, you know, it's 149 minutes. This is 209 this one absolutely earns every minute of it. It doesn't waste a single sequence. Everything is important to the plot, but even more than that, it's just important to our response to this plot. That's that's more important than even servicing the plot is is how do we respond to it? And I responded really well to this movie. It's it's a it's a tremendous achievement, and it's absolutely one of the best of the year. Uh, it's currently in my top five. We'll see what these next few weeks do, but um, but yeah. Uh, a plus for me, I, I'm I'm all in on it. I, I think that it's it's pretty perfect. Um, if not, you know, like I said, I, I hesitate to use the M word, but it's pretty close, and I love it. So, A plus for me. That's my review of The Irishman. Chase, I'll let you take over. Yeah, th- th- this is going to go down th- this year in, uh, in particular. 2019 is one of the best years in cinema. It's it's absolutely. Uh, just incredible! All these films that are coming out in this kind of latter half of the year that we've been giving A's and A pluses to, which we don't give out lightly. It's not like we just hand them out just freely. Um, so it's just it's just amazing that all these are kind of coming out all at once. But yeah, for for me, um, first of all, if we're gonna be uh, name dropping our favorite Scorsese film of the decade, I'm actually gonna go the opposite. Because Joel's already thinking like, oh, it's going to be Wolf of Wall Street. I'm actually going to go Silence. That's probably my favorite thing that he's done this decade so far. Um, and yes, Oh, no, the- no, no. So so I, I said that this is. I, I think that this is his best. No, no, no. I no think- that's, oh, yeah, before I was, this. I was saying for me. I was oh, saying that oh, you okay. probably thought for me Wolf of Wall Street was my favorite. Okay. But, but I uh, – yeah. Um, okay. But no, Silence is my is mine just because it's, it's so radically different – than anything he's ever done. And that's what I love about Scorsese is that he can tackle anything and uh, in any genre, you throw it at him, he can make it work, whether it be for families or whether it be, um, you know, this coked out energetic movie in Wolf of Wall Street or this reflective movie about questioning one's beliefs in silence or, you know, this one, which is a very meditative movie. It's just, he's just incredible. So, um, so let's just go ahead and uh, start with it and say this movie's great. I loved it. Um, and it, I also have a slight bias towards Scorsese. He was one of the first filmmakers I discovered as a kid. 
and of course, um, um, I've grown up with all of his movies starting because Goodfellas came out the year I was born. Obviously, I didn't watch it when I was a kid, but um, you know, I've, I've watched all of his films and I went back and watched him. He he's just he's one of the greats in my opinion, and he's he's one of my one of my personal favorites. And this is just another great example as to why he is one of the best. As Joel said, and I think this is very true. I don't think he's going to ever do uh, a movie like this ever again in terms of um, uh, scope and uh, really going after the, the kind of like mob genre. This is like he said, like the kind of the end cap um, to his, you know, kind of mob movie uh, career. But yeah, Scorsese once again, just creates this really kind of epic sweeping gangster film that, when you think about that and you, you say that to anyone, they're like, oh, it's going to be like, you know, just a bunch of people killing each other, a bunch of backstabbing, all that stuff, which is, yeah, this movie has that. But this is more, this is more human than I would say his previous mobs, mob movies were. This is literally uh, Frank's movie. This is Robert De Niro's movie. We He literally talks to us in the first opening scene, telling us about his life, you know, some of his high points, some of his low points, his regrets, um, the fact that he has lost his relationship with his his kids. Like it's just, it's just really kind of confessional type movie of you know uh, a man that seeks out power and money and um, you know that legend status. But deep down, this is a broken man, and we see that every time when he you know goes out to do a job or when he's interacting with his his daughters. This is a very internal story that is epic as well, and it really just uh, it makes the journey more worth it because you are following Frank literally in every scene, you know, from the fifties to the nineties, and it's just a uh, a fascinating character. It's a fascinating story to kind of follow, um, and Scorsese's great at doing that. He's great at doing these kind of sweeping epics and following characters journeys from start to finish and you're just invested 100 uh, percent of the time i i was looking at his filmography as joel was talking i mean the guy rarely makes a movie you know under two and a half hours and so he's really great at crafting these types of movies and you know this is one of his you know uh longest ones and it it feels short it feels feels swift it feels you know Everything that is in this movie is in the right place. There's nothing that's out of place. It all just feels correct. And that also has to do with the wonderful and brilliant editor in uh, Thelma Shoemaker. She's fantastic. She is one of the best of all time. Um, She's worked with Scorsese on most of his films. She just knows how to edit a film. The rhythm of this film is just another great testament as to how difficult an editor's job is when you look at stuff like wolf of wall street silence and now this they're all three uh rhythmically different and you have to know that going in you have to know what the story is you have to know what the the character is you have to know uh emotional beats uh intensity suspense and she nails it once again in this one especially with its three hour and uh, uh 29 minute runtime just everything just feels um, like it just hits all the right spots. And, you know, that's Martin and her working together and crafting this. And uh, I just wanted to give a nod to Shoemaker. She's fantastic at her job. Okay, 
the perform- and I just and I just want to tell people too, uh, if you doubt Shoemaker's brilliance. I mean, just go watch The Departed, which I, you know, kind of like, <laughs> I guess, nuclear take here. I think is actually their best collaboration. Um, and yeah, go watch that movie. It is it is a tremendous feat of editing, and she's just one of the best film editors in the business. Yeah, uh, if and not, she's the gonna best. she's gonna go down as one of the best of all time. I mean, oh, if you look oh, at her all time, yeah, yeah. If you look at her filmography, especially like because her, her and Martin are around the same age, and I I still am shocked that both of them can still put as much energy and passion uh, into their projects as, you know, people our age. And so it's just, it, I respect them to the highest regard. Okay. Um, but yeah, uh, what was I going to, uh, let's get to the performances. Robert De Niro is fantastic. And some of the best work that he has done in years, that final hour is really what gets to the core of his character. And you really feel bad for the guy, even though he is, you know, um, He's done some very questionable things in his past, um, but you know deep down that he cares for his family. And as he starts to get older and he's losing more and more people around him just because of old age, um, he's realizing that he can't lose, you know, the most important thing in his life. And he's trying to, you know, reconnect with them. He's trying to fix the problems that he's had in the past but they're just not allowing it, and you just you really feel for him, and you're like, this guy is going to die lonely. But this is what he wanted. This is the route he chose, and um, it's just a really kind of uh, uh, tender performance um, that we rarely see from De Niro. And uh, you know, it's it's got the uh, uh, gangster you know tropes too. He's got his uh, his explosive moments. You know, he has his uh, intimidation moments. Um, but, uh, all around, you still feel like that even though he went down the wrong path in life, he's still a, a good guy at heart. He just went about it the wrong way. Joe Pesci, uh, Joel, Joel nailed it. It's completely different than what you would see in like a Goodfellas or Casino. He's more reserved, but this is also the type of guy. Alone. <laughs> you know, right. Um, still a hothead in that movie, by yeah, the way. <laughs> exactly. He's, he's a hothead in most movies, which is incredible because when you watch this, he is a guy that he will sit there, he will have a conversation with you. He's very calm, and he, he respects you. But if you cross this guy's wrong path, he will, he will cut you up, he will shoot you, he will not hesitate. And that is the power of um, his stature in the film, is that every time when he enters a scene and he's talking with Frank, or he's talking with uh, whomever, you, you feel the power in his voice, and you're just like, I'm not going to mess with that guy. Um, but yeah, he he's great. My personal pick out of the three um, is Pacino. Uh, he is highly entertaining. He is funny. Uh, he's very convincing his, as his character. And that's, that's what I'll say about this whole cast is that the commitment from them is really uh, palpable. And I just, it makes me enjoy the movie a little bit more when they're giving 120%. But Al Pacino, man. Uh, Joel's correct. The, he says the 10-letter the C word quite a bit and I, I laughed every single time because the way Pacino says it yeah <laughs> yep. when Pacino says it it's just it's just funny um with that with that heavy New York yeah. accent yeah. it's just yeah. awesome it's like he's he's got that <laughs> gruff behind his voice and you're just like uh he's like Pacino calm down but uh yeah I thought he stole the show for me um he was the one where I I looked back and De Niro is like I, I I'm not going to disagree with Joel but if you're asking me, 
I haven't seen Pacino be that good in quite some time, and he delivered. So totally my favorite as Jimmy Hoffa. And let's talk about the Anna Paquin stuff. I don't understand why people are up on a hizzy. Um, the fact that she is silent through most of the movie is actually is what is powerful about her character. This is a, a girl that grew up in this household with her father going out doing these jobs and she knows dang well that he's committing these crimes even uh, watching the news and seeing these news stories she knows and he when she's a little girl her father looks at her and basically tells her to shut up like don't say anything Um, I'm doing this for you guys type of deal and so she's been quiet her entire life when she gets older she gets more confident she looks her father dead in the eye. She leaves rooms now. Like she just doesn't want to deal with it anymore. And when she finally says any type of dialogue, it's got weight to it. And that's amazing. Anna Paquin has to work a lot with facial features in this movie and her eyes and her just her body language. That is what she's working with. And that's arguably harder to act with than, you know, just speaking pure dialogue. So the power is in her silence, and people have to understand that. And that that bank scene wouldn't be as powerful if she hadn't been silent through most of the movie. So you got to look at it that way. I don't understand why people were up on a hizzy uh, about her not having as much dialogue. It, you can make roles work if they're written that way. And just watch the movie, folks, um, and you'll you'll understand why. But she was also really great. But everyone else, uh, you know, supporting cast, just everyone just fits into this world. Scorsese knows how to direct actors and really kind of craft the world that he wants to put them in. And it just, they all feel natural. It just feels like, oh, Frank's got a new, a new job. He's going to go to Tony down the street. Or, hey, he's got to go by the barber shop or, you know, this shady guy over here. It's just everyone just commits uh, to their roles. And it's just, it's really. Uh, awesome to watch yeah and um like joel said with the the cinematography i don't know why people are saying it looks like a tv movie i actually think um story wise it's more like goodfellas visually it's more like the departed and that was a theatrical like warner brothers you know movie so i don't understand where the tv thing is coming from it didn't feel like a tv movie to me even though i watched it on tv um it, yeah, it just didn't feel like it, but uh, yeah, it, it looks great. Um, I, I love the way because uh, Scorsese does this with with all of his gangster films. He uses cinematography um, uh, with like panning and tilts and stuff to reveal a lot of things, and so it's really exciting to watch. Like when Frank is on a job and the camera is like starting on the right, follows him to the left of the screen, and then like he just shoots a guy. And it's just so fast, and then he just bolts off uh, down the road, and like it's just shocking, even though you know it's coming, but it's just the way it's revealed through the camera lens that makes it um, even more entertaining to watch. And that's just, once again, Scorsese, at the age that he is, just putting that extra oomph of energy into it, and it's, and it's really... And it's been so fun to see this kind of new new collaboration between him and Rodrigo Prieto, who is one of the modern masters, by the way. This this guy is unstoppable. And 
it's just been so it's just been so fun to see this develop between them because they've been working together since the Wolf of Wall Street, and then they worked again on Silence, and then they worked again on this. These are two these are three completely different movies, uh, in in every way in every way, and it just reminds me of his pairing with Michael Ballhaus, who was his cinematographer for a long long time. Uh, worked with them on Goodfellas, and uh, some other stuff, and. Uh, he's also worked with you know Robert Richardson several times on like Shutter Island, Casino, Hugo. At least I think he, I think Richardson shot Casino. Pretty sure. Um, but Prieto is kind of his new his new partner in crime, if you will. Uh, and they've been doing you know these three movies. I think that Prieto is getting ready to shoot Killers of the Flower Moon with him. I hope that they work until until Scorsese is retired because they've been they've been churning out great, great work that is completely different visually. This movie does not look like Silence. This movie does not look like The Wolf of Wall Street. None of those movies look like each other. And it's just a great pairing. And, and that, yeah, that's so what's I so completely great about, agree with you. Yeah, that's what's so great about Scorsese as a director, because I, I've always said that the, the main job of a director is to get the best performance out of the actor, and the second job is to have a vision for the film. And the fact that he's able to communicate with, with his DP – and say, hey, for Wolf of Wall Street, I want to have uh, uh, oversaturated colors and um, really highlight, you know, greens and yellows. And for Silence, I want more gray. I want more moody atmosphere. For The Irishman, I want it to look, you know, like uh, each appropriate decade that it's in. That's hard to convey to your DP and have them execute that. And so once again. He's just great at communicating that. If he wants that as his vision, he's going to get it because he's Martin Scorsese. He's been doing this for decades now. He knows how to do it. And so, yeah, I it's going to be really sad when he retires. Um, but, man, if he can just keep doing stuff like this, uh, I cannot wait to see what he does uh, from 2020 to 2030. Uh, so, yeah, and by that point, he'll be well into his 80s, which is blows my mind. But... Um, yeah, I'm going to go and wrap this up. Irishman loved it. If you were hesitant about it, uh, I'd say check it out. If you, you know, if you have kids or like if you have to like stop it uh, periodically, I get that. But I think if even if you have to stop it eight or nine times, I think getting through it, the, the three and a half hours long, I think it'll be worth it in the long run. If you're a Scorsese film, do it. Mops, mob films, do it. I think you'll be impressed. I'm going to give the Irishman an A. So that is my grade on that. Nice, nice. All right. Well, that's our review for The Irishman. Definitely see this. I mean, hey, you can see it in a theater. Great. Um, maybe maybe don't go to the bathroom if you're going to see it in a theater. I mean, like I said, it doesn't waste any time. Um, but, you know, if you watch it at home, that's totally fine. Just maybe watch it on apparently a big iPad. That's what Scorsese said is <laughs> the smallest screen you can watch it on. But, Joel, I want to watch um, it on a Game Boy. <laughs> on a Game Boy. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, are you gonna really uh, uh, put put uh, you know a dampening on my dream, sir? I want to watch it on a Game Boy. A Game Boy. So right. I don't want to hear it. You do you. Once you find that uh, that once you like, I guess invent that technology. Let me know. I'm gonna um, do it just for this joke, Joel. Okay. All right. Um, also, what was I gonna say? Um, I just had a thought, and then it. And then it left me. Anyway, all right. Um, so go ahead and uh, let's take us into the trailers. I know that there are several uh, to to cover, and I'm just going to step away real fast. But go ahead and get us started on uh, 
on some trailers. All right, no problem. So the first one, uh, since Joel uh, and I have been talking about Disney Plus, and we always said that, hey, whenever they come out with new content, like movie-wise and stuff, that we would probably cover it if it was a big deal. Um, this is like the first like uh, trailer that dropped specifically for Disney Plus, um, but it is a full-length feature film, and it's kind of funny because Fox is releasing The Call of the Wild, excuse me, which has uh, Harrison Ford and the dog in it, and this one has Willem Dafoe in it and a dog, and this one's called Togo, and, oh, I'm so sorry, guys, uh, uh, this one is about, um, Togo, uh, the sled dog in 1925, who, uh, uh, took, took, uh, his owner, Willem Dafoe, across this intense race, uh, through the, um, you know, the cold mountains and stuff, and apparently this is a really big deal, and I had no idea about it until I actually saw, the trailer and people started talking about it in the comment section, but um, yeah, so this is like the first like big movie to drop post uh, launch of um, of Disney Plus. It comes out de- uh, December thirteenth, and it looks pretty good actually. If you were to ask me, hey, which one is going to look better, this one or the one that's going into theaters? It's the- I, I would have told you the-, the theater one because hey, it's going to theaters. They're more confident about it. But this one looks so much better than uh, the Harrison Ford one. Now, I get it. Harrison Ford, big name actor, you know, I totally get that. Willem Dafoe isn't really marketable towards bigger crowds. Like, he's he's marketable towards, you know, indie crowds and stuff. Uh, but um, I get why they're putting this on the streaming service and not releasing it in theaters. It's, just, it's really expensive to um, release it in theaters, so I totally get it. But this looks intense. It looks like a really great relationship movie between a man and his dog. Um, this is a dog that wasn't really cooperating at first, so it was really hard to like kind of train. So it, you know, it looks like there's going to be a little bit of struggle there. It looks really perilous in certain situations, like really intense stuff. It looks good. Like I love a good dog movie, and someone made a good comment in the uh, comment section below the, the YouTube trailer, it said it looks like Balto. And it kind of does. Um, so, yeah, I, I would be able to uh, say confidently that I, w- I would want to check this out on December 13th. Anything uh, that looks like Balto probably is awesome because Balto is awesome. Anyway, right. go ahead. <laughs> no, I, uh, I, I think um, – because I, I know you don't really seek out the trailers anymore, but I think right. you'll, I think you'll did this, dig this one uh, with yeah. Willem Dafoe. So – um, that's a to- Togo, right? Yeah, Togo, Togo. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so that was a really great uh, trailer. So caught me off guard, and the dog in it looks way better than the weird mushy CGI dog in the Harrison Ford one. So there's that. Um, so moving on to the next two, there's a couple of indie trailers before we get into the bigger ones that dropped. The first one is called The Assistant, and this one stars uh, Julia Garner. And this one is about uh, a look at the day in the life of the assistant to an, a powerful, uh, to a powerful corporate executive. Now you're probably thinking of that like, oh, that sounds like a pretty boring drama, which on the surface it kind of does. But when you watch the trailer and it kind of devolves into this uh, suspenseful thriller, and you're like, I don't, I have no idea what's going on, but it looks kind of interesting. Yeah, I'm I'm uh I'm on board for it. Um, you know it it was plagued with a bunch of critic quotes, so a bunch of people have already seen it, and 
the reason why I wanted to talk about this trailer is because, one, it looks pretty decent as, like, a little thriller, and it comes out at the end of January, um, January 31st, to be exact, of next year. But Julia Garner is a fantastic actress. If you guys have never seen Ozark, uh, the show on Netflix, she is outstanding on that show, and that's the show with Jason Bateman and uh, Laura Linney. It's um, it's one of the best that Netflix has to offer. If you were to ask me personally, it's definitely in my top five, and she just she's mind-blowing on that show on how good she is. And so um, seeing her kind of lead her own movie, I've been wanting to see that for you know, years now. And I think, uh, it's a nice little thriller, uh, to kind of sink your teeth into. So yeah, um, I, would be willing to, to check it out. The next trailer I want to talk about, which I've heard a lot from Tiff. Uh, it might've been Tiff or can, I'm not really sure, but this one's called uh, greed. And this one is a satire about the world of the super rich. So basically like what we were talking about with Wolf of wall street, except it's more satire. And what better way to make a satire film and have Steve Coogan as your rich man that we follow? Um, you know, he's in this one. Uh, Isla Fisher, Asa Butterfield, uh, Stephen Fry. Uh, I mean, this has got a pretty pretty nice little cast here. But I think, um, and Joel, correct me if I'm wrong, but it premiered at, like, it premiered at Tiff or Can, right? I think it was... It was either Tiff or I think it was Tiff. I, I think so because I think that it was one of these uh, these fall festivals. Uh, I don't think that it was earlier than that, but I could be wrong. Okay, so uh, I just remember people talking about it, and uh, people are comparing it to Wolf of Wall Street, since the UK version of that. But um, Steve Coogan is one of those guys that I'll just see uh, literally anything in, and it looks entertaining enough, and it looks like it could be an interesting satire or commenting on the super rich, especially in the times that we're living in now. So it could be a nice, um, you know, kind of commentary movie about society and everything. And, uh, yeah, it, it looks, you know, it, it looks like, uh, exactly what the title is greed about, a about a man that just, uh, keeps getting more and more wealthy and we get to see his crazy antics along the way. Um, funny story. I remember seeing, Steve Coogan in Hamlet 2. I actually paid money to see that. And I think it was me and one other person in the theater. And I re- I just remember that day going, wow, not many people really see Steve uh, Coogan movies um, in America. Because, like, he's really popular, uh, you know, overseas and everything. But, man, his, just, his movies just don't do well here. So I'll be curious to know how it does. I think it's Sony uh pictures classics so we'll see it comes out at the end of uh february next year february 21st so yeah i think his i think his most popular movies have been the trip movies right like the trip to italy and all that and i think and, Phil, it's, be- I think and it's because philomena, he plays philomena did pretty well right philomena did that wasn't really a, tri- a steve coogan comedy though i mean he, i know he wrote that or co-wrote it um i think that in terms of his comedies and all of that that are that he has coming out um, I think that he just plays significantly more abrasive characters than than U.S. audiences are kind of comfortable going to see, and that in like Hamlet too, I never saw, but it looked deadly. I I, I avoided it because it looked it, it just looked bad. I mean, I heard pretty good things after that, but you know, I never had any sort of push to watch it, and it might have been just people kind of saw the trailer, difficult title. And I think that he just has kind of a string of bad luck. You know, his Alan Partridge character is really. Uh, popular over there but 
the movie that came out over here barely did anything at the box office. Yeah, I think that he just plays like super abrasive characters that people don't really feel comfortable, you know, all that comfortable warming up to. And so, yeah, I think that's why he's probably met a little bit of um, box office resistance over here. Yeah, and, and, I mean, that that's exactly what I, I noticed when I saw Hamlet 2. I was like, because I thought it looked decent. I was like, oh, cool, Like a, this looks like a funny little comedy. And then from that point on, I was like, oh, man, Steve Coogan is not popular over here. So you learn something new every day. Um, all right, so the two big shows that dropped this week, um, one uh, of which is a spy movie and the other is <clears throat> a spy movie. So uh, the first big spy movie that we're going to talk about is the last Daniel Craig James Bond film, No Time to Die. Uh, and this one goes as follows. Bond has left active service. His peace is short-lived when his old friend Felix, a uh, leader uh, from the CIA, turns up asking for help, leading Bond on a trail of mysterious villain villain uh, armed with a dangerous new technology. And that villain is played by Rami Malek. And, of course, Christoph Waltz uh, comes back uh, into the fold as well. Uh, Ana de Armas is in this. Uh, we're going to talk Blomfeld, about Blomfeld, right? He's uh, Yeah, he's Blomfeld. Yeah, Blomfeld. Um, Ana de Armas is in this. Uh, we're we're going to talk about her later on. Uh, Leia Sado is in this. Ra- uh, Ray Fiennes. Um, and, of course, our our beloved Q, Ben Winshaw, is uh, back once again. Um, so definitely a great cast for sure. And, of course, adding Oscar winner now, Rami Malek, is going to uh, turn some heads for sure. But what I'm more excited about is the director at hand, which is Kerry Fukunaga. This, this guy's you know, really great at what he does. I really wanted to see him um, tackle it chapter one when he was, you know, with it for the longest time. But, you know, Andy Muschietti, you know, uh, did a good job. So, you know, it wasn't too bad. But it would have been interesting to hear or see his vision of that film. But I got to tell you, and this might be a hot take. I have no idea how it's doing on the, the Twitter right now. Um... I love Casino Royale quite a bit. Like it's, I think it's my favorite one, uh, just in general. Um, Quantum Assaults, whatever. Uh, Spectre is great, and then um, wait, not Spectre. Uh, Skyfall is great. Excuse me, and Spectre is whatever. So, uh, you know, Daniel Craig has had a a bit of an up and down with this franchise, and No Time to Die looks good. But this trailer is terrible. I don't know who edited this. I don't know who put it together. But it is a mishmash of confusion in the story. A lot of fade in and fade outs when they're uh, just randomly placed. It It just seemed like a bunch of random shots and set pieces thrown together as more of a highlight reel than an actual trailer to, you know, tease with character, a little bit of the story, and a little a little taste of the action. It just, it just felt like a mishmash and it didn't feel like a cohesive trailer, um, that you would expect right out of the gate with a James Bond film. So I was not a fan of the trailer at all, but I'm still excited to see it. Um, because I, I still like Daniel Craig as James Bond and the, you know, director at hand. And it just, but this is just one of those cases to where even if it is a popular franchise like this, Sometimes they fall, and I just, from a a 
trailer standpoint, it just it did not do it for me. And I think there was a couple people that may have had that same sentiment online, but I don't know what the general uh, census is. So, you know, it is what it is. But in the last trailer, um, want to talk about? Excuse me. Is Black Widow? Uh, this is Scarlett Johansson's uh, finally her her solo film in the MCU, and it will be the first film um, post Endgame, even though it's not even taking place after Endgame is taking place in between Civil War and Infinity War. So that is your timeline that we're working with. Um, she goes back to her hometown, and she discovers her sister um, is there, Florence Pugh. Um, you also have Rachel uh, Weiss, you David Harbour, and it's like the Russian Incredibles. Um, that is probably the most accurate way to describe this movie. Um, it's like the Russian version of the Incredibles. So, you know, that's kind of cool. Uh, I'm glad that she's going to interact with more of people that she grew up with, and we get to see kind of a little bit more of her backstory, even though in Age of Ultron and um, a couple of flashback scenes and other films, we got to see really how she grew up and how she became a deadly assassin. But it's still going to be great to kind of go back to her character one last time, given the events in Endgame and seeing what her quest was in between Civil War and Infinity War. This looks great. It's a really well-edited trailer. Uh, it's a high-octane spy action thriller. I'm all down for it. It looks fantastic. The music to it uh, almost sounds like Blade Runner, uh, which is an interesting choice. But uh, when I watched it a few times, um, the music made more sense. Uh, and it just, I don't know, it just adds a different kind of flavor to it. Because, uh, you know, listen, if you're going to make 20-plus movies of these movies, it, you know, in, in the, the MCU, they got to stand out. And so the music was really uh, abrasive. It was tech heavy, but um, it reminded me a lot of uh, Blade Runner. So take that for what you will. Great trailer. And it ends with a great uh, sequence, action sequence that I'm just like, this movie's going to be wild. But um, yeah, really looking forward to uh, finally her. Um, you know, solo film. So that is the Black Widow trailer. Joel, did you, um, cause I'm assuming this is going to play in front of, you know, like Star Wars and stuff, but did you, uh, have to sit through like a Black Widow or No Time to Die in the theaters? Uh, I didn't watch the No Time to Die trailer. Um, I did watch the Black Widow trailer, uh, because I, I think I voiced this when, uh, the Birds of Prey, the Birds of Prey trailer came up. I'm really interested in next year's superhero content considering it's all directed by women. So I'm going to be watching the trailers for these. We got a Wonder Woman 1984 trailer coming this weekend apparently. So I'll be watching that as well. And um, yeah, just because, you know, just out of general interest. And this looks fantastic. This looks really, really good. Um, very Captain America Winter Soldier-esque. Right. Uh, in, in terms of leaning really hard into the spy thriller aspect of it. And people have been making direct kind of visual comparisons to the two. And I think it's, I don't think it's them, you know, like ripping off of themselves. Like apparently a couple people out there seem to think, I think it's just them making natural kind of connections because those two characters were very connected to each other. Um, they had, you know, similar, there's just, there's just a similar vibe between those two characters. So, uh, yeah, it looks fantastic. Really entertaining. I like the dynamic between this family. I do have a question about one continuity thing. Uh, 
in and I'm going to bring it up now because you know Endgame's been out a while, so whatever. So in the scene right before in Endgame, right before she makes the ultimate sacrifice, and that's kind of the the elephant in the room is the fact that this is being made after the character's death. Um, they uh, she and Hawkeye go to go to Vormir and meet up with uh, Red Skull, who has a way of greeting people by calling them their name and then son of whoever, right? And it seems to be kind of a random mix of names, but it's usually, I find, whoever made the most impact on them. Sometimes it's a mother, sometimes it's a father, uh, or is most meaningful to them for whatever reason. And whenever he does that, he says, uh, Natasha, son of Ivan, I think it is. Um, I just I know this because I just watched it a few weeks ago again, and I just noticed this, and I and and it clashed with this trailer because clearly she has an idea of who her father is, right? And it's clearly David Harbour's character, because there's there's this big family reunion, and uh, or maybe it's I I don't know, maybe it's her brother and sister. I'm not sure what's going on there, but it felt like it's parents, right? To me at least, and so. If that's the case, then there's a continuity error because when it, when she is talking to Hawkeye after having heard her father's name, she actually says that she didn't know his name. So I have to wonder. It, it's very possible uh, since this trailer doesn't reveal too much, maybe like an uncle or something. Either yeah. an uncle or a brother because really brother. David Harbour's not not that old. Um, yeah, it might be that, that he's her brother. Maybe these are all siblings. Um, whatever the case, you're right. It's kind of Russian Incredibles um, or Serbian or something. Um, Incredibles, I, I, I just – I love this trailer. It's really well put together, uh, really well edited. I haven't seen any, any of the other trailers that you're talking about. Um, I'm certainly interested in No Time to Die as Daniel Craig's last bid with Bond. Um, not Not interested enough to seek out the trailer though. Uh, and then Togo sounds interesting. Certainly, like I said, if it's like Balto, that's that's pretty cool. I love Balto. Um, and then the other two sound sound pretty interesting too. The Assistant and Greed. Um, I've heard good things about the Assistant. Comes from a, a documentary, a documentarian making her uh, narrative debut. So that's pretty cool. Uh, I think it's like Kitty Green or something. Anyway, uh, yeah, that's my that's my thoughts. So the only one I watched, of course, was. Was Black Widow and it looks fantastic. So I can't wait to see what uh, the first this first new kind of brave new world for um, for Marvel looks like uh, with Disney Plus, you know, kind of uh, running alongside it with offering us shows and then these movies and yeah, it's going to be an interesting interesting. I have a feeling the first real movie kind of, if you will, in the narrative is going to be Eternals, not this one, but right. Um, but still. Uh, it looks like a looks like a good kind of, um, I guess a breather from a main a, a big main plot, you know, movie kind of in, in a way, and uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. All right, folks. Now for our news segment, you know, we don't have many. We didn't really have anything from the industry that broke, except for today. But I'm going to be pushing that off um, to next week or to to our next episode, which is in two weeks. And before we get we begin, by the way, uh, Joel, go ahead and uh, do the news section. I will be right back. Okay, that's fine. 
So uh, we don't have much in terms of the industry to talk about, but we do have a lot of awards stuff to talk about. So first, we have the New York Film Critics Circle, which uh, voted and awarded The Irishman Best Picture, uh, which is a pretty big win for that. Uh, It makes sense considering it's Scorsese, who's kind of tied to New York, even though the story doesn't take place in New York. It totally makes sense. It's primarily set in Detroit. Um, elsewhere, you had the Safdie brothers win Best Director for Uncut Gems. You had uh, Banderas and uh, Antonio Banderas and Lupita Nyong'o won the, the lead acting awards for Pain and Glory and Us. Uh, Joe Pesci, a surprise supporting actor win for The Irishman. Uh, and just an FYI, uh, no person has ever won an, an, a supporting actor award. Or very few people have won a supporting actor award. And not been nominated for the Oscars, which is very interesting. I think the last time was in the 80s. So we could very well be looking at another Academy Award nomination for Pesci. Uh, And then Laura Laura Dern won jointly for Little Women and Marriage Story and Supporting Actress, which is pretty neat. Uh, She's she's very good in both. Um, So those are kind of the main ones. And, of course, you had Tarantino wins um, screenplay. Parasite won Foreign Language, which – uh, makes sense. That's basically dominating that right now, and it's everybody's favorite. Um, best first feature went to Atlantics, uh, which is a movie that I just watched today. Excellent film. Uh, and then, let's see, best cinematography went to Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I can't wait to see that, although I am counting it as 2020 because of its release date. So that's the New York Film Critics Circle. They 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 gave it to The Irishman, which really won big. Um, getting two of the awards here. So, yeah, very good uh, wins there. Then we have the National Board of Review, which is always an interesting thing to watch. Um, they also gave Best Film to The Irishman, which is pretty impressive. But Best Director went to Quentin Tarantino for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So you have kind of these two old masters working in similar you know, vantage, uh, vantage points, um, both working with Pacino for the first time. Which is a fun connection, and uh, and then Uncut Gems again winning big. Adam Sandler won Best Actor. Uh, Renee Zellweger won Best Actress for Judy. Uh, that's pretty typical. Um, Brad Pitt for Once Upon a Time and Supporting Actor. But you did have this surprise. I wasn't expecting this. Kathy Bates won Best Supporting Actress for Richard Jewell, uh, which I'm seeing next week. Then, let's see, uh, Uncut Gems and the Irishman won the Screenplay Awards, Original and Adapted. Um, breakthrough Performance went to Paul Walter Hauser for Richard Jewell. That doesn't surprise me. Best Directorial Debut went to Melina Matsukas for Queen and Slim. This is another movie I saw this week. It's pretty good. Uh, certainly a deserved win. Very uh, very showy debut for, for Matsukas. Um, How to Train Your Dragon went with uh, Best Animated Feature, which is kind of surprising just because it's not – um, it isn't usual to, to, for that one to show up. It's been, it's been kind of, uh, Toy Story 4 and, um, uh, I lost my body winning, war- winning awards for that. Once again, Parasite for foreign language. You had Maiden, really good documentary that won that award. Knives Out won the, the ensemble. So very, very, very good selection of winners. And of course, even though they do give one movie, best film they also have a list of the top films which are basically two through 11 for them and those were 1917 dolomite is my name ford v ferrari 
Jojo Rabbit, Knives Out, Marriage Story, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Richard Jewell, Uncut Gems and Waves. Really impressive list. I've only seen – I've only not seen one and a half of those. Um, so very good. Um, let's see. So that's the National Board of Review. Always interesting watching those because they, they are a major um, predictor kind of source for the Oscars, uh, just for anybody who wants to know that. Uh, okay, so that's the NBR. Now you have uh, the Gotham Awards. This was a really, really interesting race to watch. Love the Gotham Awards, and they gave Best Feature to Marriage Story. Uh, that is the film that I think still, after all this, is going to win Best Picture, although The Irishman is certainly making a showing. I think it's going to go to Marriage Story, uh, American Factory, another one that I think is going to win one Best Documentary. Uh, screenplay, once again, Marriage Story, Adam Driver won for Best Actor. Now, Best Actress did not go to Scarlett Johansson, who wasn't even nominated. It went to Aquafina for The Farewell, very deserved win there. Uh, breakthrough actor went to Taylor Taylor Russell in Waves, which is just an interesting thing to consider that she that she ended the the year after this um, after beginning this year with Escape Room. Just a an interesting kind of um, contradiction there, but um, but yeah, so that was the that was the Gotham's. Just a couple more guys, uh, or one more awards body, and then we got a short list at the Oscars to talk about. So. First, we got the AFI the the AFI awards this year, which uh, sort of work like NBR. There's a there's kind of a um, uh, a top ten, and then they give a special award to something. This year, the top ten included 1917, The Farewell, The Irishman, Jojo Rabbit, Joker, Knives Out, Little Women, Marriage Story, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and uh, Richard Jewell, which. All of those, at least in my mind, were expected. They love Clint Eastwood, so of course they were going to go with that. Um, there's been a lot of uh, support surrounding Joker, so I was expecting that to come up. Uh, I think the only real surprise was the farewell getting in. But other than that, pretty expected. And then the special award went to Parasite. So um, likely because that wasn't an English-language movie, I'm guessing, wasn't like – at all an English language movie and like the farewell, which sometimes was, um, yeah. So that's the, that's the AFI top 10. Really cool. I love seeing that every year. Um, although it's usually pretty typical. So the bat, the last bit, um, is the VFX Oscar long list. Now this is always released around this time. Uh, this is going to be whittled down then to a list of 10, which will then be whittled down to the list of five nominees. So what they do is they have various little uh, showcases to figure it out, and then they have longer showcases and I think like a, an actual sit-down dinner or something like that with a, bu a bunch of nominees and uh, where they see some more. But for now, the listed films include Ad Astra, The Aeronauts, Aladdin, Alita, Battle Angel, Avengers Endgame, Captain Marvel, Cats, Dumbo, Fast and Furious Presents, Hobbs and Shaw, Ford v. Ferrari, Gemini Man, The Irishman, Jumanji, The Next Level, The Lion King, Men in Black International, Midway, 1917, Spider-Man Far From Home, Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker, and Terminator Dark Fate. So pretty much everything you'd expect is ba is basically in this. I think that um, 
really no surprises here. Maybe the aeronauts would surprise people. Um, but it didn't surprise me, especially after watching it, that they would go for something like that. But I think that basically the, uh, the front runners here are the Lion King and star Wars. The other three, um, nominees are pretty much up in the air. It could be, well, maybe not anyone, but it could be a weird collection of nominees this year. Let's just say, um, I have a feeling like stuff like Hobbs and Shaw and men in black won't get in there, but still it could be anything. Uh, we have, we have had some, some surprises in this category for sure. And so that's it basically guys. That's, uh, that's my news. I realized quickly that there was not really anything from the industry to talk about very, uh, very substantively sir. So, or substantially, whatever the word is. So I decided to turn it into a bit of an awards update. Um, this is how the the race has gone, and uh, it's going to be exciting to see where it goes from here. So um, that's it for the news. Chase, you were gone for some of that, but basically kind of the summed up thing was that the Irishman took New York and National Board of Review. Uh, you had Marriage Story took the Gothams, and um, uh, yeah. So any thoughts on any of that? I mean, we – we kind of uh, predicted even before the Irishman came out. It's like it's Scorsese. Like unless the movie is just atrocious or even just mediocre, there's going to be some nominations thrown at its way in some categories. But winning the top prize that is fascinating because didn't Green Book win last year uh, from NBR and of course it won um, Best Picture. And so does this have any weight? I'm not really sure. I think. Um, I think oh. you, you and I, uh, I think you and I have come to the understanding that Marriage Story is probably going to be the front runner uh, in terms of the win uh, for Best Picture. So you know, Gotham is not really like a big award um, thing, but it, it is nice to see Marriage Story kind of come out the gate uh, strong with that. So maybe it can carry over into the Oscars, but. Even if Marriage Story and The Irishman are going head-to-head, this is a win for Netflix all around. And the fact that they're on the you know, the precipice of winning Best Picture is incredible. And I think you and, you and I even said that in our anticipated of the year episode. We're like, Irishman could win it. Like, we're, we're, we were, before we even saw the movie or even a trailer, we're just like, it's very possible this thing could win it. And if Netflix could get that and secure that win, or even with Marriage Story, I mean, this is going to, I mean, that that's just impressive. And so knowing where they started out at, at the beginning of the decade and where they ended up, that would be quite the story for them. But it, it makes sense to me uh, that the New York uh, Film Circle would pick Irishman, um, and they also gave Uncut Gems a lot of love too. Um, both of those are, you know, kind of set in that kind of area. So, um, yeah, I, I, f- I felt like, you know, those two movies, uh, they would kind of gravitate towards. Um, so that's not surprising. The NBR one is uh, not really su- surprising, but, you know, could be a kind of gateway into, you know, the bigger awards. And then the Marriage Story winning Gotham, I mean, that's, that's awesome. So, and of course, uh, the AFI uh top 10 um all all great all 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 it's a great list and so i think we we kind of 
pinpointed out, you know, movies throughout the year as we talked about. I'm like, oh, this is probably going to be in there. This is probably going to be there. Yeah, that's that seems like the correct uh, 10 uh, movies there. So, you know, good for them. And then the visual effects thing. Um, I Listen, I still I still think Ad Astra has the best of the entire year, um, but it has no chance of winning. But I think Joel is correct. It's probably either going to be um, Star Wars or Lion King. So a win for Disney either way. So um, even if Ad Astra won, Disney would have still won. But um, and you brought up the Aeronauts. You know, I I have my review up there right now. The visual effects are definitely the the best part about that, and they're absolutely stunning. So yeah, and I have a I have a feeling that we need to watch that just because its its inclusion here suggests to me that it could get in like in terms of it would be like a hereafter nomination. Uh, right. Remember how hereafter got in just because of that one giant scene of of destruction, and not that this only has one, but it's it just feels like. Maybe the the inclusion of that suggests certain a certain move toward that movie as being maybe not you know popular in other categories or whatever, but certainly in this one because it really would deserve it. I mean, it relies a lot on it, it's impressive green screen work, which is yes, really exactly. hard to do, by the way. Like this yes. is a movie that has a a literal wicker basket on a soundstage. Yep, and it's a <laughs> yes. camera that just moves around it. That's it. Yeah, and, it, it was literally nothing was in the air. Uh, yeah. I mean, they even created the the shots of it from afar that were in the air. And, I mean, it's impressive. And, again, like you said, a big, big part of – in fact, I think it's going to get in because of this. A big part of something that the, uh, that the Academy does not like is bad green screen work. And so, and so they've, they've actually, like – you know, kicked out movies in the past because of it. And so if something can have impressive green screen work, it might be that they nominate it. So, yeah, I mean, we should be watching that. Um, I just wanted to ask Chase real fast because I lost you just for a couple of seconds. I've heard, I heard most of what you said, but I was just going to make sure because of course we're, 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 uh, <laughs> we're recording now. This, this sometimes happens guys. I'm, we're still recording, right? Yes. Okay, cool. I just, I heard a, I heard a, a, uh, again, guys, live show. I heard a, a distressing noise um, whenever it it lost connection with you just briefly, and it was a noise I'd never heard. So I was just making sure that it didn't it didn't uh, kick me off. But um, but yeah, okay. So that's it for the news, guys. We'll move on to our record our, our uh, review of Knives Out. Um, now this one is the latest film from director Ryan Johnson who really impressed with a couple of kind of lower-budget movies, uh, Brick, uh, The Brothers Bloom, Looper, before making it big with the most uh, popular Star Wars movie of all time, The Last Jedi. Whoa, whoa, um, whoa, everyone... whoa, whoa, whoa. Joel, wait, hold, hold on. Are you saying that Knives Out was directed by a guy that was supposedly bullied off of Twitter? No, that can't be. <laughs> The the trolls online said that his career was canceled after the Last Jedi. Are you sure yeah. that he directed this one? <laughs> Maybe not. I don't know. Oh my god! Uh, no. I, I'm just really confused at this point because I thought they ruled the internet. <laughs> oh boy, uh, it's so funny because his response to that whole scene is in this movie, in the form of a character. Um. We'll get to that. It's not a very strong response, but it's it's a it's a fun little it's a fun little wink of a response. We'll get to that in a second. But 
yes, this is the new movie from director Ryan Johnson. Um, and it stars a lot of people. Basically, the story here is that the patriarch of a massive family, played by uh, Christopher Plummer, has died. And the question is whether or not it was by his own hand or by another's. Um, he's found dead in his secret study uh, with his throat slashed. And the question is, who did it and what are their alibis? So uh, the main star of the movie, we'll get, to, we'll get to that character in a minute, but seemingly the main star is Daniel Craig, uh, who plays Benoit Blanc, a, um, a, southern, a southern gentleman and a private investigator who was hired by a mysterious source to investigate the death. Um, he suspects foul play, but it doesn't help that none of the family members are helpful. And it also doesn't help that the only witness, uh, potentially, was a young woman uh, who is in the employ of the family. Uh, she's played by Ana de Armas. Her name is uh, Marta. And here we have a bunch of family members. We have the, the, uh, the patriarch's two surviving children, played by Jamie Lee Curtis. And uh, Michael Shannon, uh, he also had a son who previously died and had married a, uh, a woman who became a daughter-in-law, played by Tony Collette. Uh, meanwhile, the Curtis character is married to Don Johnson, and the Shannon character is married to uh, Ricky Lindholm. Um, you also have some grandkids here, including Chris Evans as Ransom. That's his name, Ransom. Uh Catherine Langford of, of um, 13 Reasons Why fame as Meg, who is the daughter of the Tony Collette character. And Jacob, played by Jaden Martell of It Chapter One, um, as an SJW troll. No, I'm sorry, a Nazi troll who hates SJWs. <laughs> My brain just went in a weird place there. Um, uh, named Jacob. He's the son of the uh, the Shannon and, and Lindholm characters. So lots of people here to, to take uh, into account. And there's also a couple of other detectives played by Lakeith Stanfield and Noah Segan. Um, there might be even other characters here that I've forgotten about. But basically, yes, this is this is all set within a giant mansion as it's shut down pretty much so that the family can, uh, you know, kind of offer their... Um, their alibis and and possibly reveal motives for murder. It's a very twisty thing. It's basically a murder mystery in the in the tradition of Agatha Christie, um, but twisted to be more modern. There's there's a lot of unexpected places that certain information comes out in the screen. The screenplay by Johnson, which is really clever um, in the way that it builds that mystery. So yeah, uh, I was obviously excited for this. I mean, I'm a fan of Johnson's. I love his movies. Um, I'm 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 happy to say that I like it. Uh, although I think that it's actually the worst film from Johnson, which is again relative because he's made pretty much only great movies from this point on, um, or up until this point. Sorry, I can't speak tonight, and I'm sorry. Um, but this one is quite good. It's it's a lot of fun. There's uh, a real sense of mystery. There's a real sense of kind of actors who are really having a ball playing this material. Um, I think that there are some really strong characters here. 
And I think that there are some really weak characters here, and I'm going to kind of get into that because of just the fact that it's a murder mystery means that some are going to be shunted off to the side. They're really just going to be pawns in someone's scheme, and that is the case here. It kind of strands, and without giving anything away, it kind of strands Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, Don Johnson, um, Michael Shannon to some degree, uh, out there to do good work in kind of two-dimensional characters, in, in a two-dimensional sphere almost. Uh, the really good work here belongs to Daniel Craig, who is having a really, really fun time uh, adopting this – I don't know what kind of an accident it is. It's like a mixture of Kentucky and Louisiana and Florida um, that obviously blends some of his natural British accent because he's not quite able to make it believably southern. Um, it's just a fun – it's just a fun performance. He's having a lot of fun performing this role. And doing this accent, he's he's a lot of fun here. You have Chris Evans, who basically kind of uses his good looks against the character almost. He makes him into just a a total just a total creep. Um, Ransom has no patience for anything involved in this particular investigation, and um, and just and just doesn't want to be a part of it. Keeps disappearing from from the house at inopportune moments. Um, whether it be in the past or in the future or the present, I should say. And um, yeah, but he's, he's good. And, uh, but the real star of this movie in the best performance in the movie is Ana de Armas, who is fantastic. This is a star making performance. If I've ever seen one, I mean, she was already, you know, relatively well liked because of her appearance in Blade Runner 2049. And she's done solid work over the years in various movies, but this is going to be the thing that puts her on the map. No Time to Die is certainly going to help her reuniting with Daniel Craig um, in a big budget, you know, action movie where she suppose where she apparently plays something of a femme fatale. But this is a really good performance as a person who is significantly less privileged than the family for whom she works. You know, her mother's an undocumented immigrant that comes into play, sort of. Across, uh, uh, along the way and you know she's just kind of seen as this annoying obligation she you know barely um, uh, garners the respect of some of these members you see this in a little in a in a just a hilarious or not a hilarious but sort of acidly funny I guess shot where she's conversing with the whole family Don Johnson's character uh is done with his plate of food and hands it to her as if she's a maid, which is just extremely telling about what he thinks of her, even though she's a nurse, practicing nurse, and the uh, assistant um, for Harlan, for the for the patriarch, played by played by uh, Plummer. And uh, I think the Armas really sells this idea of this just kind of put upon woman suddenly thrust into this investigation um, with so much on the line elsewhere um, and also kind of caught up in the schemer's plot uh, at the end of the day and somehow is able to claw her way out of it. Um, I'll just say that without ruining, ruining anything. She does take an active role in this investigation. There's a point at which she stops being a passive protagonist. She becomes an active participant. 
that's really, really nice because she kind of does start as this passive protagonist. Somebody's re- reacting to everything that's happening. But she shifts, and the movie shifts along with her. Uh, I think, though, that the movie does stay one step ahead of her and maybe right along with us, which is an interesting decision on Johnson's part because the movie, by the time, I guess, the 45-minute mark comes, we know everything that, that occurred. I won't tell anybody here what happens, but uh, we know everything that pretty much occurred. And so I think that the mystery, as well crafted as it is, comes across as a bit anticlimactic when it comes to a close. Um, especially the details of what happened. Uh, again, I won't say anything about that, but it's it's a little anticlimactic uh, just because... Um, I guess I was just expecting something bigger, almost, um, louder, I guess. There's also an attempt, I, I feel like, to thread in a sociological element to this, or sociopolitical one, the where the kid's the Nazi, and um, there's different opinions about how much of a Nazi he is. He's a troll and, and all of that. He's always on the line, or he's always... Uh, <laughs> pleasuring himself in the bathroom or whatever and he's just this total creep and the and at its core of it he's a nazi and also you have this stuff with the um the the undocumented mother i feel like ultimately even though it is a little bit more than you get in your usual murder mystery it's still not so much more because it's all at the whims of the plot it all has to do with the plot ultimately um there's really no sense of an outside world here other than those little facts, um, little details. Uh, so a little bit disappointing in that respect to make the movie more than what it is, which is really just a fun mystery for either for us to solve and, or for the movie to tell us or for us to watch kind of the murder mystery play out. Um, I think that that's where this movie's strengths are. And in the cast, again, like I said, really good performances across the board, even if it kind of shunts some of these characters off to the side a little bit. Um, and so I liked it. Uh, I also like the score a lot. It's, uh, Nathan Johnson, who's a cousin of the director kind of covers a lot of genres in this score. There's horror, there's whimsy, there's, um, kind of a, uh, um, a quirkiness to it that isn't too overbearing. It's, it's a lot of fun. It looks really good. Stevie Edlin obviously is the cinematographer he always works with, with Johnson, um, looks very crisp, uh, takes advantage of the uh, the surroundings really well, especially at night. Um, and uh, really good night photography here. So, yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed it. There's not much to say about this movie without giving everything away. Um, I think that it does come to something of a little bit of an anticlimactic close, but it's, it's never less than fun. And it constantly uses misdirection, which is always nice uh, for your murder mysteries to do that, even if we know stuff. It's constantly making us question that, um, our confidence in that. And, uh, yeah, so quite a good movie. I'm giving Knives Out a solid B. I think it's pretty good, and uh, I wish it was better. Maybe a rewatch will uptick the grade a little bit. Uh, it certainly has quite a bit of um, entertainment and rewatchability value. But, um, but yeah, for now, I'm, I'm settled nicely on a B. I think that that's, that's a fair grade for this one. So that's my review of Knives Out. Chase, take it away. Yeah, so 
before this movie came out, it premiered at TIFF, right? And people were losing their minds over it. And over the past couple weeks, people have just been losing their minds over it. And I'm like, okay, that makes sense. It's Ryan Johnson. Um, you know, I'm a huge fan of him. So, hey, people are going crazy for it. It gives me um, just that next level of excitement uh, before I go see it. And so I'm seeing all these, like, really positive grades with, like, you know, A's and four stars and five stars. And, like, whoa, like, what kind of mystery whodunit film is this? So... I saw the movie, and I gotta tell you, I agree with Joel. I like the movie. I don't understand why people were blowing out of proportion. Um, it, yeah, it's it's good. And, you know, it's 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 uh it's really fun to watch with a crowd in a theater. Um, really gets you invested and just kind of takes you along for that. You know almost like board game quality where you're like, all right, what, what's the next movie? We need to go here. You know, what's the, what's the end game? You know, how do, how do we get there and stuff? So, you know, it's a, it's a very communal movie for sure. And I like it, but it's definitely not, you know, this, uh, Oscar worthy, you know, a, a plus movie that everyone's touting it to be. But, uh, I, I think Joel and I will still recommend it to you, uh, if you were still curious. And so with Ryan Johnson, I've enjoyed everything that he has done in terms of the movies that he makes and the genres that he takes and he twists them. You know, with Brick, it was a, a fresh take on the neo-noir. It was set in a high school. You have uh, Looper, which is a really uh, kind of fresh take on the time travel uh, science fiction film. You have Star Wars The Last Jedi, which was bold. It was ambitious. It was so radically different than The Force Awakens that it stands out. People might disagree with it. I love it, but it stands out, and he added his own unique touch to it. And this was the same way. Um, typically with whodunits and mysteries, the formula is, you know, after the end of Act 1, you get, you know, uh, a little bit of the clues, you get a little bit of the information to, uh, you know, kind of piece together for you. At the end of the second act, you get a lot more information and clues to where you can, you think you know who it is, uh, but then the movie still goes on. And then at the end of the third act, it's usually either the killer that uh, is revealed and they reveal their whole plan and you get to see the whole movie uh, play out again, or it's a misdirect and then it's actually someone else and it subverts your expectations. That's typically how a whodunit, uh, how, a, how a traditional whodunit is structured. With Ryan Johnson's film, he reveals this the whole situation within the, at the end of the first act. And what I found interesting about it is that once everything is kind of out there in the open after the end of the first act, he mainly focuses on the aftermath of the family after the death and how they squabble towards one another. You know, maybe the will comes in at some point. Everyone's fighting for that piece of the pie. That stuff was fascinating, and then towards the end of the third act, we get um, a misdirect, and we get to see the real killer, and so that's that's kind of how it is um, is structured. And to go off of Joel's point, I actually agree with him. It is a bit underwhelming because when a certain person walks into the the scene, and we get to hear them talk for the first time, I'm like, that's the person that did it. Uh, so, and then as the movie kind of played out, and the movie ended it was revealed to be that person I was like, okay, that wasn't really um, anything that was challenging or whatever. It was just, it was just kind of there. 
So that is a tad underwhelming. It's still a fun journey to get to that point, but the actual climax and the the reveal, because that's the whole crux on this genre, it is a bit underwhelming. Also, to go on Joel's point uh, about the the whole politic angle, you know, just like with the Irishman, uh, the Anna Paquin thing was like dominating conversation for stupid reasons, and Knives Out is doing the same thing again. Uh, as the Irishman with um, its political talk. If you watch the movie, they literally have one conversation about politics and they have character traits of two kids. That's about it. I mean, it's really not anything to ride home about. It doesn't make the movie any better or any worse. It's just... It's just a scene that happens. It's just there to show us that these family members argue quite a bit. It's yeah. almost basically just a motif on right. uh, like just in the background, kind of something that that is part of the movie's tapestry, but not something that's up front, which makes me kind of resist saying that this is what the movie's ultimately about, which is kind of the word on this particular subplot. Like, I don't think it's that. I think it's just a murder mystery and it just happens to have slightly deeper characters than we than we anticipate. And that's that's basically my point. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. And, yeah. And, and people that are looking like so far into it, like there's really nothing to look into. It's just something that Ryan Johnson put in for one scene and it's the characteristics of two kids and that's it. And it just like I said, it's just there to show us they they argue quite a bit and they disagree on a lot of different things, which is uh, leading up to the you know explosion at the will reading uh, where everyone's going to start yelling at each other. I mean, it's just it, I didn't see it as a big deal. I was just like, did it need to be there? Probably not, but it was there and it didn't bother me. Um, so yeah, I don't know why people are reading into it. Um, okay, so I think Ryan Johnson for the most part. Uh, constructed this movie uh really well in terms of um script and directing it just it felt fresh it felt unique on this genre and it was really fun to watch and i would expect nothing less uh from ryan johnson um the way this movie is shot uh is really is really slick you know it really utilizes the house in interesting ways a lot of you know visual noise in the back of each you know, character. So there's a lot of visual eye candy to look at. It's just, it's a really slick looking movie. Um, I, I do like the fact that Joel pointed out the score because the score is very fun to listen to. Uh, cause when you think of like whodunits or mysteries, like, uh, you think of stuff like clue or, you know, other movies within that genre, you want something that's kind of whimsical and kind of, um, kind of fluffy and just kind of, you know, plays its strings into like pianos and violins and stuff. And he also, you know, kind of does a little bit of a horror stab at it. And it's just, it was cool. It was cool to see him kind of go into a little bit um, of a different take of what he he had done previously. And then uh, it, it actually worked. And so I found that to be uh, quite compelling. So uh, the biggest thing about this is the cast. Um, definitely one of the best ensembles of the year. Um, and yes, that includes stuff like Avengers Endgame or, um, you know, I saw Bombshell recently, which I don't, I don't know how they got half of those people, but, uh, this, this has a great ensemble cast. Uh, whoever the casting director is, uh, just like with the Irishman and movies like that and stuff, give them a raise because, uh, they did a really good job casting all these different people 
which you would think would not work well together on screen, but when they are together, you're like, that is so genius. Like, for instance, when you think of Chris Evans and Jamie Lee Curtis, you're like, ah, I don't know if that's going to work. And then they play mother and son in the in the movie. You're like, okay, I can see it. Like, so um, I, I thought the the overall casting choices were really great, and everyone just looked like they were having a blast. Uh, Daniel Craig and his weird KFC Southern accent um, was really uh, interesting to listen to because he, like Joel said, he's you know he's got uh, he's he's from the UK, so um, yeah, it doesn't quite work. But I think that's the the charm of the character, and I just I, I was with it one hundred percent. You know, Christopher Plummer, Jamie Lee Curtis, John uh, Don Johnson, Michael Shannon, uh, Chris Evans, all fit into the roles just fine, and they, they all carry the movie on their shoulders. It's not um, anyone stealing scenery or whatever. It's just everyone does their part and carries it to the finish line. But Joel is absolutely 100% correct. Uh, Ana de Armas, she is uh, fantastic in this film. Really the heart and the center of not only the story, so she is the character that we follow, but also the best performance of the entire movie, really adding more depth and emotional depth to her character than any other character in the movie. So she does stick out in that way. Um, It could be viewed as a negative thing in that she's trying super hard and everyone else is not. But when you see the context of like her character and the story and like what's happening to her, there's a lot riding on her shoulders and you know for someone that's just like a a nurse to Christopher Plummer's character who's this you know rich um you know guy in this you know, patriarch family um you understand why she's feeling the way she's feeling and I thought she conveyed that really well and I, I was listening to an interview with Ryan Johnson and he was talking about uh Armas and he he was saying that you know she needed to have that emotional clarity for those scenes to work. If she did not have that, those scenes would not work and you would not be behind this character or the actions that take place. And I was like, that may, that may, that's a good point because uh, if she did not sell it to us, then we wouldn't be behind the journey that she takes us on. But she she really went there in several scenes and she definitely has some of the best uh uh, crying uh, that I, I've seen all year uh, in terms of just on cue, just like, boom, uh, she starts crying. But yeah, she's having a great career so far. I got to be honest with you, and this is just because I thought the movie was just, it was really not that good. When I saw her in Knock Knock, I was like, oh no, no one from this movie is going to have a career besides uh, Keanu Reeves, of course, because uh, he's Keanu Reeves. But um, I was like the, the of, two of the two of the two door knockers. <laughs> yeah, of the, yeah, the two door knockers. I was. I like, never, oh, I no. never saw the movie, but I know she was in it. Yeah, yeah. I was just like, oh no, these these, these two aspiring actresses are not going to get any work from this movie. And the other um, actress uh, that was next to to Anna, a uh, little fun fact: she was she dated Eli Roth for like the longest time, uh, and he directed that movie. So there you go. Uh, she she does stuff periodically, but uh, uh, Anna is doing so well right now. You know, going from knock knock to 
you know, stuff like Blade Runner 2049, and of course being in Knives Out, and now a James Bond film, it's like, she is on a roll, and Ryan Johnson, when he was talking about her, said that she is gonna just become the next best thing, and I was like, I believe it, um, and especially after uh, watching this, she really, she really did that, so yeah, the whole cast, fantastic to watch, and it was just a, a fun little time at the theaters. Once again, I agree with Joel. I don't think it is like this groundbreaking thing that people are are making it out to be. It's a good movie, and it's good to watch with people. Um, but yeah, that it's nothing more than a B. So I, I'd give Knives Out a B. It's you know it's a solid little film. Um, I have really nothing more to add. I think for something that is a mystery or a whodunit. Ryan Johnson did his best to make it fresh, make it a little different, um, but still play to some of the tropes that we all love from this uh, type of um, this type of film. Because who doesn't like to go to a theater and like have a murder or a missing person's case presented in front of us, and we get to sit there as an audience and not only be entertained by what we're watching, but also kind of figure out like, all right, who did it? Like who 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 can we eliminate? Who can who we put as a top suspect? That's fun. That's a you know, it's it's one of those genres in film that just it, it can bring people together and it can just make a, for a, a pretty fun experience. So that is my take on Knives Out. A solid B for me. Yeah, and I will just say, you know, I'm not reviewing Uncut Gems. I'm just going to say both are 130 minutes and both are basically tied for the fastest 130 minutes of the year <laughs> because this did not seem like that. It did not seem that long. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's an that's an achievement. That's a real. I, mean, I, really... I, I also agree with you. If I had to rank them right now, it's the bottom of uh, Ryan Ryan's list. Um, I, I'm I'm still I'm still privy to Looper and then I would go right. Brick. Star Wars, and then this one. I would say, if I'm going to rank them, um, I mean, this is at the bottom, and then I'd probably put the Brothers Bloom second to last just because there's problems with it, but it's still really good. It's basically kind of a Wes Anderson answer to a heist movie. It's pretty pretty neat. And then um, after that, probably the same as you. I would probably say The Last Jedi, then looper than brick at the top which is just which is a masterpiece um that movie's much more than just the gimmick of noir in a high school there's there's a lot going on in that movie too and uh one of the best movies of a great movie year 2006 yeah yeah, it's a really really good filmmaker so and what a great way to end the episode uh, joseph gordon levitt we miss you uh please right oh my gosh yeah please do another role oh my gosh Please, please, please. He's he's a great, great actor. He, he has worked with Ryan three times now. Yeah, and you're, exactly. you're thinking last... like, what's the third time? Uh, he he did have a, a little cameo in Knives Out. Right. Yeah. <laughs> also, didn't he have? I think he had a little bit of a cameo in the Last Jedi. I thought he, I heard that. He might have. I think it was like a background thing or something. But still, yeah. He he. They're really good friends. So. All right, um, so that's our review of Knives Out, our reviews, I should say, Knives Out. Definitely go see it. It's a fun time, and that takes us out of the episode. Basically, we're going to be gone for two weeks. Uh, Chase is going on a trip. He's leaving me. 
he's 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 skipping town. He's heading out of Dodge. I'm just kidding. He's just going on a Christmas trip. Yeah, but. I, I just want people to know that Joel and I have the most expensive arguments on the face of the planet. <laughs> Every time when we have an argument, I'm like, I can't talk to you anymore. I have to leave the state and I have to go travel somewhere. So I have to like spend hundreds of dollars on a plane ticket to get away from Joel. That's how intense our arguments are. There we go. Yeah, we we shake the roofs, man. We shake the roofs. All your roof damage, that's us. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. But um, uh, so we will be back in two weeks. And, guys, it's a big one. Big, big, big. Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker. I can't wait. Is it weird Obviously. to say that I'm more excited for you to see it than for me to see it? Because this is your <laughs> Avengers Endgame. I've yes, already had I've already had my end game. I've already had right. my my you know experience with the well, end of the story. This is your moment now. Weird weirdly enough, I mean it would have changed now, but weirdly enough, I don't know if you remember this, but I actually had Avengers Endgame at number five and it was above Rise of Skywalker at That's number true. six. But it would have changed. It would have switched around I mean, it did switch around, I should say, once the first trailer of uh of Rise of Skywalker dropped. I mean I was then more excited, but yeah, I mean, I was excited for both, but you're right. I mean, you've had kind of your big, you know, nerd explosion <laughs> movie that you were, you know, the the end of an era for you. And this is an end of an even longer era, you know, the end of the Skywalker saga, which has been in the works since 1977. Um, and so I just, I can't wait. And so, so I have to ask you real quick, just for when people listen to this and, you know, when they hear our reviews and maybe it's different. From what you're about to say, or maybe, you know, less than, more than, whatever. I just want to ask you this one one thing. Like, okay, what what are you expecting from this? Are you expecting a a grand finale of a conclusion? Are you expecting from for some doors to be left open? Like, what are you expecting from this? I don't I don't think that they'll leave any doors open. Uh, personally, I mean, if they do, they'll be kind of the smallest doors that have the least significant impact on the plot. Um. I'm expecting some degree of finality to this particular saga. I don't know if I'm expecting that it will kind of burst doors open in a way that The Last Jedi did, just because that was so unprecedented on a plot level. I think that there's going to be some degree of callback that Abrams brings back to the series after doing that with Force Awakens. I mean, he's obviously involving the Emperor again, so that's going to be, you know, a call the major callback. Uh, so I think that there's going to be some degree of calling back to what we know, which really only half of the Last Jedi did, um, if any of it. And so I don't know. I mean, obviously, you know, maybe it'll be better, quote unquote. I don't know if it's going to be as much of a barn burner as the Last Jedi was. But I'm very excited because it's going to be very much a, a Deathly Hallows Part 2 kind of thing, um, the end of a particular storyline. So, yeah, I, I, it's so weird to think that it's our next episode. It's just so weird that it's that close, you know? And even though it's still a couple of weeks away, you know, we're going to be taking a break and then we're coming, coming back and immediately reviewing that. So it's uh, it's pretty crazy and I uh, can't wait. So... That's the that's the deal. That's our next episode uh, on whatever day of that weekend we can do it. We're going to be doing it, and that'll be our next one a couple weeks from now. So, uh, Chase, have a good have a good uh, 
trip. And if you want to find my writing, my, my presence online, I should say, you can find my writing at Joel on film. Now, of course, I reviewed Knives Out and the Irishman last week along with Honey Boy, so you can still read those as of when most people are listening to this on Saturday. But I will have new reviews uh, up for Atlantic's um, uh, Queen and Slim and The Report, um, which all drop on Saturday morning. I also reviewed uh, Fighting With My Family, which I had missed a, re- a chance to review back uh, on my website back in February. So I, I kind of turned the clock back and did that. If you look at my, my 2019 listing, you'll find that starting on Friday morning or uh, Saturday morning. So yeah, uh, that's that. You can find my ramblings on Twitter at Real Joel Copeland, my daily progress watching movies on Letterboxd, etc. And uh, Chase, what about you? Yeah, if you guys want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Real Chase Lee. If you guys want to follow the podcast on Twitter, it's at Real Me and Podcast. And of course, for the podcast in general, if you're listening on Spotify, Castbox, iHeartRadio, Apple, Google, wherever, uh, please know that we appreciate your support and uh, please continue on. We're going to have a great, you know, 2020, and we're going to finish out this year strong with you know the end of the year list and everything. But we really appreciate you guys' support and you know to support us, you know. If you guys could just let people know this is your favorite one uh, out there and to listen to, or even if you just want to spread around the mini reviews, whatever, uh, any type of uh, awareness would help, and we would really appreciate it. But, um, yeah, that's where you can find all my stuff, and uh, that will do it for this uh, episode, guys. 303 is in the bag. 304 will be Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker. Should be a lot of fun. But that is Joel. I am Chase. We'll see you guys in a couple weeks for, I think, the smallest film of the year. We're not really sure, but it's going to be really, really small. It'll but, be maybe 11th on the box office uh, Yeah, maybe the the maybe 12. It might break in the top 10, but we're not really sure. Um, but yeah, uh, Star Wars is going to be massive, but we'll see you guys uh, then. And so uh, peace out. Have a good day, good night, and uh, you guys are awesome. Bye-bye. Bye. To women who hoped to evade the ticking clock of time, Dr. Frederick Brandt was the most potent drug dealer in the world. And the dealer got high on his own supply. From Imperative Entertainment and the team behind Broken Hearts comes a new series that will challenge everything you know about fame, fortune, and the fear of growing old. I'm Justine Harmon, and this is The Baron of Botox. Now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. Our new investment product offers competitive returns, no maintenance fees, and flexible online access to your money. Make the reliable investment in reliable energy. The Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. To find out more, go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. That's reliabilityinvestment.com.